I want to invite you to open your Bibles to that place. I got you. I haven't forgotten you, Mom. (laughs) My mother thinks I forgot her. There's your program. Thank you for helping out. We're in Luke chapter 20. Uh, We are progressing in our Dear Theophilus series. We've been working through the book of Luke. and Luke has uh, written an orderly account for us. He's researched the the fundamental things of the faith. He's investigated. He wasn't an eyewitness to, to Christ's earthly ministry. But having investigated it for himself, for his own faith, and investigated it, to be able to write this account, he has interviewed and, and pursued the eyewitnesses so that he could give us a foundation. And he tells us in the very first chapter that the reason he's writing this gospel, this story of Christ's earthly ministry, is specifically so that we would know the certainty of what we've been taught. That we would, in other words, know what we believe and why we believe it. That there is a trustworthy foundation here. Very often in our world, the scriptures have been questioned. Our faith has been questioned. And Luke is here to say, listen, this is a historical reality. Not only is it a historical reality, but here's what Jesus said. So when you hear the teachings of the apostles, you can trust it. You can see how it lines up. The scripture is our foundation. So without further ado, let's read our text for today. We'll be reading Luke 20, the first 19 verses. You can follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading from the the 2011 edition of the uh, New International Version. Forgive me if I occasionally stumble on words. Those of you who have been here know that I prefer the 86 edition, so a lot of the time my mind will be following the 86 edition while my eyes are following the 2011 edition. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I'll also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, uh, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, "Uh, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. But the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. When the tenants saw him, 
they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. None of the people heard this. They said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that we are given, both by Christ and by Luke, who records this for us. We thank you for your spirit who opens our eyes and our hearts to receive what you have for us. And we ask that you would make this live to us, that we might rightly reflect the reality of Christ through the relationships you give us. Father, let us not be unchanged as we receive your word today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, just to kind of fill you in here. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom a lot. We talked last week about authority. He's established this authority concept. And Jesus has just come into Jerusalem being recognized now as king, as Messiah. The people were confused about how that was going to work out. They thought he was going to come to Jerusalem, and as soon as he gets into the city, he's going to go and take over, kick the Romans out, and lead this army, and and, uh, the glory of Israel would rise, and his kingdom would be established forever. They were thinking in a temporal sense. And the day will come when that will happen, but Jesus had already told them, no, the Son of Man is going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. It's going to be raised the third day. He had told them, look, this is not the observable kingdom like you think it is. That time is coming, and the kingdom is both now and not yet. So immediately after Jesus has talked about these issues of authority, immediately after he's been hailed as king, and he's wept over Jerusalem because they didn't recognize the truth of God's mercy to them. And immediately after he has cleared out the temple of the corruption that was there, you can imagine how the religious leaders, who were part and parcel of all of this, how they might have felt. This guy thinks he's going to throw us out. This is our system. We're in charge. This is my place. We hold the keys. We are the masters of our own destiny. The nation follows us. We are, in other words, the keepers of the vineyard. How dare he? Then when he throws the money changers out and we see the, uh, we see the, the finances get hit, well, you know what happens when you start to hit people in the pocketbook, right? 
So the religious leaders are fired up. And it's not just that they're religious leaders. These are religio-political leaders. The, the nation of Israel still saw itself as a theocracy, sort of. They were under Roman rule, but they still believed that they were the chosen people of God, as God had told them. Jesus is clarifying in some of these things how that's going to work out. Because while God chose them and God gave them a unique relationship, they did not produce fruit for him in keeping with that relationship. And so the privilege, the special status of those who had been called the people of God will be essentially revoked. The vineyard will be taken from them and given to others. As this comes to a head here, the Pharisees are, are in that first paragraph, kind of sets the stage for us. The Pharisees are ticked. So authority is a big deal in any society, but all of these leaders had a particular authority. It was recognized by the people as part of the hierarchy. If they were clan leaders, tribal leaders within the nation of Israel. They were considered to be elders and their wisdom and experience gave them authority. So the people recognized authority within the leadership. They're, they're calling Jesus out. Who do you think you are? What authority do you have? Now if he says he's just on his own, doesn't have any authority, we're going to get rid of him. That's easy. If he says he has authority from God, now he's stepping up and actually claiming something that they would not recognize. The people have already recognized him as Messiah. But if he's going to say he's from God, then we can call him out for the blasphemy, which is eventually what they will find a way to do. They have to make things up to do it. Even though he absolutely claimed to be God, it's funny how we do that, don't we? We, we have actual legitimate things that we can look at, but we make stuff up anyway. You see this in, in politics all the time. People don't like this candidate or the other candidate, and there's plenty to criticize in every candidate. But then we go and make stuff up. There's no reason for this. Let the truth stand. So they attack, they accuse. Jesus says, well... Let me, let me put this back on you. He responds with a question. You're going to question my authority. Before I answer that, you tell me, <clears throat> where did John's authority come from? Now they're on the hot seat. Because they had John killed. Herod had John killed, but they had rejected John. They had refused to obey John, refused to identify with his baptism for repentance. They didn't like John any more than they liked Jesus. Herod just got to him first. So their conundrum is, if we say that John's authority is of human origin, the people are going to they're, they're stone us. Because they think he's a prophet. They're convinced that he's from God. A little personal observation, I think they're convinced too. I, that's, this is just me. But I think looking at this parable... Clearly, the farmers, the tenants in the vineyard, they knew who the servant was coming from. And yet they rejected the servants. Here's John. I think they knew full well where his authority came from. So they can't say it's from heaven. They can't say it's from man. 
Because if it's from heaven, then why didn't you follow him? Why didn't you obey him? So Jesus doesn't deal with them. Then he goes into this parable. Now, before we get into the, the points that we want to see here today, I want to tell you my goal, my aim, my intent. My intent today is that every single person here will feel confronted with the truth of the scriptures. That as we look at this, that you will either find yourself comforted in knowing where you stand or convicted because you know where you should stand. That it will actually hurt a little bit as we see this text and as we hear from God. It's really difficult for me as I'm doing this because I don't like to hurt your feelings. I don't like to hurt my feelings. But since God's been hurting my feelings in dealing with this, I feel like I should share that with you. It just it seems like the right thing. God's been stepping on my toes. Hopefully he's going to step on yours as well as we go through this. Our core reality today as we work through this, having seen how, this, how, the, how the context leads us here and as we look at this parable and what Jesus is doing, he gives us the point. He makes it really clear. A core reality is that those who receive the Son find mercy and favor. Those who resist the Son find only wrath. Sorry, it's not short and clever. We just got to know the truth. Those who receive the Son find mercy and favor. Those who resist the Son find only, only wrath. As we're working through this, we'll just jump right into the points and hopefully we'll be able to see it together. First off, Note this, we have a job as we're going through it. As we're working through this story to get what God has for us, we need to do a few things. First, possess the pointed parable. Possess the pointed parable. This is a very specifically pointed parable that Jesus is telling. He is talking about, he's talking to the people, but the message to the people is pointed at the Pharisees. They know it. They're angry about it. That's why they go from diligently seeking a way to kill him to we're trying to kill him now. It becomes immediate. Luke starts to sound like Mark. He throws that immediately in there. It's right now. We want to kill him now. We don't want to wait until tomorrow. We want to kill him now. Because now he's calling us out specifically. It's not just that he's upsetting the apple cart. He's actually pointing an accusing finger at us, and they know it. This parable is a parable of rebellion. It's a parable of resisting authority. Let's just kind of talk through it. Most of these things are relatively obvious, but I want to make sure we don't miss it. The man who plants the vineyard is God himself. The vineyard refers to the status and relationship of Israel. A vineyard is a picture of Israel in the Old Testament, but it's more than just the existence of Israel. It's the covenant existence of Israel. It's Israel within that covenant relationship with God. It's the fruitfulness of Israel. It's the blessing of Israel. It's all of the things that make Israel God's people together. 
the fruit or the harvest that the master sends the servants to collect is the righteousness and the holiness that the vineyard should be producing for the master. This is the, the theme of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah hammers this. So many, every, every prophetic book that you read, every one, is the call for Israel, for God's people, to produce fruit. To not just talk about it, but to be about it. Don't claim righteousness. Don't claim that you belong to God. Show it in how you live. And God constantly is calling them back to this, to a life that isn't just going to the temple and offering worship. It's not having the sacrifices. It's not singing the songs. In our context, it's not just about coming to church. Now, throughout the Old Testament, he doesn't let them out of those things because they were given to build them, to make them more like God. Where the people of God are gathered, that's where we need to be. But that's not enough. If you come to church every single week, you're always here. Maybe you teach a class, or you stand in a pulpit and preach, or you play in the band. If your life isn't producing fruit that brings glory and honor to God, then God is displeased. And you become like these tenants. The, the, the tenants here, the farmers, are the leaders of Israel. Israel as a nation represented in these leaders. There's a hardness to them. They want to control the vineyard. The vineyard was given to them. It was made for them. And as they see that vineyard, they like it. The vineyard's producing fruit, but they want to keep it. They want all the profit for themselves. How dare the owner of the vineyard expect to collect rent? That's crazy. How why would a landlord think that he should be able to get rent from us? So they knock out the servants. Who are the servants? The servants are the prophets. The prophets of God who have been bringing the word of God and telling the people, look, God gave you all of this. He brought you out of Egypt. He gave you victory after victory. He has blessed you richly. You who were poor and naked and blind, not a nation. He has made a nation, and he has made you a great nation. And then you rejected him. You decided to keep all God's stuff and kick out God. That ain't good, in case you're wondering. Something's not right. So the servants, these prophets, lead right up to John, the last of the Old Testament prophets. So it's not insignificant that he's talking about John and his authority right before he tells this parable. Who is the son? Obviously, it's Jesus. Earlier in Luke, he is announced by the father as the son whom he loves and whom he is well pleased. And the father sends the son to do what the prophets, the servants, couldn't do. In capturing the hearts of those who presently possess the vineyard. I apologize for lacking alliteration. Who presently possess the property. So as God brings the sun to them, they think, we want to rule this vineyard. We want to be in charge. 
Same as the religious leaders here. Don't upset our authority. So they eliminate the son. They eliminate the son so that they can stay in control. They want the full inheritance. At that time, if, a, uh, uh, if the owner of the property dies and there isn't some family member to claim it, it goes kind of up for grabs. Maybe they presume, presume in this parable that the owner is dead, and, and so if they kill the son, they'll have it. It's not really the point. But they want the stuff. They want control. They want to be the master. Let's eliminate the son. And then there are the others. Notice at the end of the parable. Um, we're looking at uh, verse 16. Glasses. There we go. Uh, 15. They threw the son out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. The vineyard to others. Who are the others? It's the church, specifically the believing Gentiles. Now, he's not giving the blessings of Israel to everybody. That's not how this works. If he was going to do that, he didn't need to eliminate Israel. He didn't need to eliminate the leaders. If he was just going to, yeah, whatever. None of this really matters. None of the, the blessings of the Old Testament, none of the covenants really matter. I'm just going to let anybody in. Just do whatever. But those who believe, those who are, as Paul would say, Abraham's seed according to their faith, those who receive Jesus, receive the Son, have the right to become children of God. So the believing Gentiles, which would include virtually all of us here, if we are in Christ, if we believe, then we are the others to whom the vineyard is given. Now, if we handle it the same way that the tenants in the parable do, we get the same end. So we need to possess the pointed parable. We need to, to take hold of it. We need to hear it. We need to receive it. We need to make it ours. It's not just a story about Israel. It's a story about life. In fact, Israel is an illustration of that. We see Israel from Genesis all the way through the end of Malachi, this picture of the history of Israel as an illustration of God's relationship with His people. All His people, both pre-Israel and during the church age, all the way until His return, God deals with people who are continually unfaithful. Think about who you know best to be unfaithful to God. If you're honest, you should be pointing at yourself. Because each one of us is unfaithful. We follow the same history that Israel did. And we need to own that. We need to possess that to say, yes, I fit this picture and I'm going to do something about it. I don't want to be those who reject the son. I want to be among those to whom the vineyard is given. Those with whom the owner is pleased. We need to possess the pointed bearable. Next, we need to ponder the prophetic point. Ponder the prophetic point. The climax of this story, the key point, is summed up for us by Jesus himself. It's pretty simple. Be broken or be crushed. We read it earlier in Psalm 118. We see it here 
in verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, What is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. That's our memory verse for today, and I would encourage you to put that deep in your, in your mind and heart. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, this stone idea is a pretty big deal in the Old Testament. We see God referred to as the rock of our salvation. God is regularly uh, portrayed as a rock, as a stone. And a couple of key places for us to see. Uh, let's take a look at uh, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23 that we read earlier today. In the midst of this psalm of praise, we have this messianic reference. Verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Your translation may say the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the stone, but it's more than just this passing reference. Uh, turn to Daniel chapter 2. Where's Daniel? If you're in Psalms, turn to the right a little bit. You'll find some pretty significant books size-wise. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, let's see, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. I say that and I turn right past it. When we get to Daniel, in chapter 2, he's, he is interpreting a dream from King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is a uh, Hebrew boy who is carried off and has uh, risen to power. You're, most of you are familiar with the story and its, and its uh, elements. But here in chapter 2, we see Daniel interpreting a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. It's a bizarre dream, and uh, his sorcerers and astrologers could not interpret it for him. And uh, it's kind of a... Uh, Daniel, we see a lot of the prophecies of the end of the age and kingdoms that will, that will come and go, that will rise and fall. <clears throat> Notice this stone idea in verses 34 and 35. Actually, let's pick up with 31 so that you get the full context of it. The king has, has dismissed his wise guys, so to speak, He's convinced that they're trying to scam him because they can't tell him. If you're really magical, if you really have these great spiritual powers, I don't want you to just interpret the dream. I want you to tell me what the dream is. And they're like, dude, nobody can do that. That's not possible. Well, now I know that you're fakes, so I want to find somebody who can do this. Daniel shows up, and the, the king says, tell me the dream. Tell me what it means. Verse 31, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out. Check this out. 
while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. These are all referring to kingdoms, and we could preach a whole series just on this chapter, but as we look at, at what's happening here, there is a stone being cut out, not by human hands. In other words, it's not a human kingdom. It's not human activity that's going to do what's happening here. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the earth. The stone here is Christ. Jump ahead here uh, to verses 44 and following. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Needless to say, Nebuchadnezzar was very pleased with Daniel, and the story continued. What we need to see is that Christ here is a stone that strikes the nations and breaks them into pieces, crushing them to dust as the wind sweeps them away like chaff on a threshing room floor. There, there is a very specific prophetic point Jesus is referring to himself here as this stone, as the Son of Man referred to in Daniel, the coming one. This, the messianic claim is extremely clear as it has been. The stone, <clears throat> excuse me, the stone is Christ. The builders are Israel's leaders. The broken, from his Psalm 118 quote, those are those who repent in humility. The crushed are those who do not think they need to repent or choose to reject the stone. Ponder the prophetic point. Jesus is saying, look, I'm here. I'm the Son. The Father sent me to take care of His affairs because you're not handling the vineyard on His behalf. You're handling it on your own. The stone is here. And if you fall on this stone, yeah, you'll be broken. But if it falls on you, you'll be crushed. This is the principle that we need to grab from it. So we need to possess the pointed parable, ponder the prophetic point, and perceive the pertinent principle. We're having fun with alliteration today. But the reality is there's a principle here. It's our core reality. Those who receive the Son find mercy and favor. Those who resist the Son find only wrath. Check this out. You, to receive the Son, must and will be broken. There is no salvation without brokenness. If you are not despairing of your own righteousness, you cannot know God. The stone breaks all who fall on it but it crushes those who do not when it falls on them. 
Jesus was very clear in the previous parable about the, the minas or the man who went away to be crowned king and leave, leaving his workers in charge. And those who were working on his behalf received reward and those who were not and those who resi resisted his rule were slain. They were condemned, judged, executed. He says the same thing here. This is how the, it ends for all who resist the Son. In the meantime, mercy is offered. If we simply will receive Him, then we can be a part of what the King is doing. We benefit from the vineyard. It's an interesting thing about these tenants. If they had just done what was right, if they had surrendered themselves to the king, to the master of the vineyard, had given fruit that honors him, in other words, they'd paid their rent, and worked within this covenant agreement, they would have received blessing from the harvest. That's the amazing thing about following God. When we let go of our uncontrol and we stop trying to run the vineyard ourselves as if it's ours, and we submit to Him and do what He wants us to do, and we say, Lord, I'm yours. Do what you want to. Have my heart. Have my life. Have my priorities. Then we find blessing that we can't get any other way. But by trying to hoard the blessing, by trying to store up the gifts for ourselves, living as if this vineyard belongs to us, we bring wrath, we bring judgment upon ourselves. And we miss out on the blessing that He wants to give us. We act like God is stingy with His gifts. He longs to bless us. He longs to give us good things. But when we're opposite of his will when we stand in opposition to him we find only pain oh we might enjoy it for a while those are really good grapes we're getting out of the vineyard but if we don't respond to the servants we suffer if we resist the son we suffer eternally Possess the pointed parable, ponder the prophetic point, perceive the pertinent principle. But there's more. We have to act on it. We can get it all. I, 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 I can know the scriptures inside and out. I can memorize the entire book. You know who knows the Bible really, really well? Satan. The devil knows the Bible much better than I do. The problem that he runs into is he doesn't submit to it. He doesn't love it. He doesn't love the Son. So with all of the great doctrine, with all of the knowledge of the Scripture, with all the wonderful singing of hymns and songs, it means nothing if we don't do something about it. Here's our last point perform the proper personalization. I didn't have a better P word, so I had to stick it in there. This is where we talk about the application of it. This is where we make it personal. How do I fit into this? The text says what it says. Jesus gives us the point. It builds to that climactic statement, right? 
the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I am He. I am the Messiah. And if you will fall on me, you'll be broken, but you will be saved. If you don't, wrath, condemnation, eternal death await you. It is a guarantee. There are only two ends to this story. You either belong to Him in brokenness, or you are crushed by Him in judgment. There is no other end. We are in this story. We need to personalize it and make it ours. So I have to ask myself some questions. How does this principle apply to me personally? Okay, I've read the story. I got it. I, I, have, I have possessed this pointed parable. I get it. It's not just about them. It's about them, but I'm in this. I see myself here. I have pondered this prophetic point. I've thought about what Jesus is trying to say. And I've gotten an understanding. I've perceived this pertinent principle. It's not just an old thing that I see in the Bible. It's for now. It's for today. Now how do I apply it? How do I take that principle and make it something in my own life? How does it apply to me personally? I would start with this question. Am I broken or will I be crushed? Ask yourself that. Ponder it. Meditate on it. Am I broken? Or am I just doing church? Am I a pretty good person? Do I think I've, I'm pretty good? And, and You know, I, I have sin, I mess up, but God knows I'm doing my best. That's not brokenness, guys. That's not what we're called to. First and foremost, this principle applies to our salvation. We must, we must fall on the stone for mercy. This is the gospel. God created us, our entire existence, the entire existence of the human race, but your personal reason for being alive is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You were created in the image of God for a relationship with God. But sin has separated every single one of us from Him. And there's not one thing you can do about it. You can't make it better. I'm going to say that again because you've got to get it. Because many of us have gone to church our whole lives and never been saved because we thought we could somehow fix ourselves. We could will ourselves to better habits. And if I just stop this sinful habit, then God will be happy with me. If I give more to the poor, if I show up to church more, if I do the things, man, you can do all the things, but if you don't fall broken before Him, if you don't surrender everything to Him, then your very best is sin. Isaiah calls it filthy rags. If you're in Christ, then He is pleased with you. God smiles even when you struggle, when you fall on Him. But if your religion, if your faith, if your morality is carrying you, it is, I can't say this loudly or strongly enough, it 
is sin. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Impossible. Everything that you and I do, apart from doing it in faith, apart from doing it in absolute surrender to Him, is sin. Because that's what we exist for. But when I'm in Him and I'm broken and I'm surrendered, man, it doesn't matter if I'm going to the fair or going to church, I can bring joy to God and blessing to those around me by surrendering my every moment to Him. So I'm created for this relationship. I've blown it with my sin. Everybody has. And I can't fix it. That's bad news. But there's no good news until we start with that bad news. The good news is that Jesus came, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus came so that we can be broken. So we can stop being hardened. And our hearts can be shattered. In the Old Testament, God says, I'll take your stone heart out and I'll give you a soft flesh heart that responds to me. That's what happens when we're broken before Him. Jesus died to pay the price for my sin. I can't fix it, but He already did. It's by grace that we're saved. When we take hold of that grace by faith, by simply trusting Jesus. Not trusting with our mouths. That, that's not faith. That's lip service. Faith requires obedience. If I really believe it, I act on it. If I don't act on it, then I'm just talking. By grace I'm saved. Through faith. This is the gift of God. It's not our own righteousness. Why am I spending so much time in church with a bunch of Christian people talking about this? Because so many people, so many of us, can spend our whole lives in church and never get it. We have to be broken. I've used the word broken a lot. I made a point of making sure that it's in the songs that we're singing this morning. That we're broken, broken, broken. Because brokenness is something we avoid but it's the one thing we need more than anything else. We can't get to righteousness and holiness and faithfulness unless we start with the brokenness. So if you have come into this relationship with Christ, who died for you, and everyone who trusts in Him alone has eternal life, that starts now but lasts forever. If that's you, then the question I need to be asking is, how am I living broken? How does my life reflect the fact that I have been broken upon this stone? Let me ask you this. When was the last time you shed tears over your sin? Not felt bad. When was the last time you were so mortified by your sin that it shattered you and the tears flowed? Now, for most of us here, most, not all, you probably haven't had big headline sins this week. Maybe you didn't cheat on your spouse. Maybe you didn't go get drunk and hop in a car. Maybe you didn't kill anybody. Those are pretty big things, right? We probably would, we would lament those. When was the last time you shed tears over your pride? 
When was the last time your heart split in two because you prioritized other things over God? Because your TV show or your sports or your education or your job was more important to you than God and His Word and His people. When was the last time that broke you? If you're in Christ, these things need to, need to cause tears, need to cause pain. When was the last time you shed tears over the lost people in your life? The people that you know, that you care about, who are going to hell because they don't know Jesus. When was the last time that broke you up inside to the point of tears or more specifically to the point of doing something about it? When was the last time I shed tears over the glory and reputation of God? I need to ask myself, am I even saved? Sometimes our perceived assurance, our confidence in our salvation isn't rooted in truth. And sometimes that assurance can be harmful to us because we're assured of something that is false. Sometimes the doubt can be the best thing in causing us to really grapple with the fact that I need to be changed by my faith. If I'm not being daily transformed, not perfect, none of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. God knows I'm not perfect. That's why he's been punching me in the gut with this sermon all, all week. But if we're not being progressively changed more and more into His image, in spite of our struggles, in spite of our failures, if it's breaking us and changing us, then we're becoming more like Him. But if it's not, am I even saved? Then i got to go back and look at this over again. Or am I just acting like the religious leaders here in the story? Checking the boxes, resting on some false identity or past experience for my assurance. Oh, I was baptized when I was little. So therefore, I'm saved. Oh, I had a great youth group experience. I was at this retreat. I gave my life to Jesus. Then I did it again the next year, and I did it again the next year. And I, I, Yeah, so I'm, I'm in, in Christ. Oh man, I listen to Christian radio all the time, so I must be saved. Guys, that's the same kind of stuff that these Pharisees would be doing. They're doing all those things so to speak. But they're about to be crushed. Am I broken or am I going to be crushed? Brokenness means no pride, no personal agenda, no excuses, and no exceptions. I am not yet broken if I'm still doing my own thing, if I'm still leaning on my own understanding, if I'm still prioritizing my personal pursuits over God's purpose for my life. I need to ask myself, what does or what should this look like in my everyday life? As I'm working through this, as I'm applying this principle, I'm personalizing it, bringing it into my own life here, what does it look like? should it look like? 
If I'm not prioritizing the family of God and all that that means, including a strong commitment to meeting together for corporate worship, instruction, accountability, then I'm not broken before Christ. My life is intact. You can't come to Christ with your life intact. It's my own, and I'm my own master. I'm my own king. I'm my own Lord and God. I don't function well in that role. If I am my own Lord, my own God, my own Savior, my own Master, I call the shots, I decide what I do, I set my priorities, I'm not broken before Christ. If I'm not deeply, painfully grieved by my own sin, sickened by the thought of dishonoring my Savior and Lord, if that doesn't turn in my gut, and perhaps He's not actually my Savior and Lord and I'm not yet broken. If I'm comfortable in my daily lifestyle, not suffering for the gospel and sacrificing for others, I'm not yet broken. Brokenness is anything but comfortable. If my Christian life is comfortable and it does not involve suffering and sacrifice, it is not the Christian life. The Christian life, the way of Christ, always involves suffering. If I cannot point... Now, I want to make sure we get this, so let me slow down just a second. If I cannot point to specific areas of my life in which I am sacrificing for the gospel, not sacrificing, I'm not fasting so that I can lose weight. I'm not sacrificing worldly goods so that I can save up for other worldly goods. That's not what we're talking about. But if I can't look at specific areas in my life in which my living like Jesus, living for Jesus, is causing me pain or rejection or discomfort, then I am not yet broken. If I'm cool in the eyes of the world, I'm not broken. I need to ask myself, what does God want me to do about it? How does it apply? What's it look like? I don't think anybody here is a perfect picture of this. I know for a fact I'm not. I'm betting you're not either. So now what? What does God want me to do about it? He wants me to act. He wants me to identify the problems here. Identify where I'm not in step with his plan. The areas that I've held on to control where I think I can run the vineyard. Where I'm not producing fruit. Whether anybody else knows about it or not. Maybe it's a private area. Maybe it's a public area. But it's something that I have not surrendered. It's still intact. I'm still in control. If I'm too active to assemble too stressed to serve, too shy to share the gospel, too worried to worship. I need to act on these things. If I'm not yet broken, I need to revisit the gospel I'm trusting for my salvation. Is it based on my righteousness?
righteousness and morality, or is it based on the fact that I am in myself wretched and I need mercy just to get through the day, just to get through the moment? Am I recognizing that Jesus died on the cross for me? That it wasn't Jews and Romans who nailed him there, but my wickedness, my sinfulness. Oh, but I'm a pretty good person, right? If that's not breaking me, I need to readdress where I'm placing my faith. What is the gospel I'm believing in? It's not morality, but it certainly isn't immorality. If I have fallen on Christ for mercy, I will, in fact, I must inevitably be broken. I cannot receive the Son and remain the same. I may struggle with many things. I may battle certain tendencies my entire life. It's not about whether or not you struggle with them. It's not about whether you have a hard time with lust or a hard time with pride or a hard time with fear and worry. Everybody has a struggle. It's not about whether you're gay or straight or rich or poor. It's about whether you are broken and surrendered to Christ. And if you will fall on Him, you will find mercy. But you can't find that mercy without the shatteredness that comes. I may struggle with many things, but I must produce fruit for the glory of the owner, the glory of the master. I cannot remain hardened and resistant to the message God is sending to me. So as I wrap this up, I want to ask you personally, where, where are you today? If we had time, I could go down each row look you in the eye. I want you to imagine that I'm looking you in the eye, asking you this question. Where are you today, right now? Are you broken? Or are you holding on? You can't be broken without pain. My aim today is to confront you with this mirror of the Scripture. For this to hurt you as it hurts me, you need to see yourself in Christ's words. He presents here two real options. They're simple. The broken and poured out for God's glory and the hardened and crushed by God's judgment. As we close this out, is your life producing fruit for the owner or are you living as if you are the owner? We are called in humility, in brokenness, to surrender everything, everything to Him. Jesus makes it clear throughout the book of Luke as we work through this gospel, we keep on seeing over and over, if you're not willing to give up everything, you don't belong to me. If you're not willing to lose your family, you don't belong to me. If you're not willing to set aside your worldly goods, your reputation, your own excellence, you don't belong to me. What areas of your life have become more important than God's priority? Let's choose to receive the Son and find mercy and favor, not to resist the Son and find wrath. May we each surrender everything to Him. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, help us today to understand that you expect your people to produce fruit for your glory. You have planted a vineyard. You have dug a tower and a wine press in it. You have poured out your blessings on us. And you expect us to produce fruit for your glory. Lord, show us today that we can't, we can't be saved without brokenness. We can't receive Jesus without pain, without being shattered and humbled. Father, I pray for anyone here today who is not in that saving relationship who is, as of this moment, still destined to be crushed, to be judged and condemned. Lord, I pray that you would move in them, that you would open their eyes, that they would fall on the mercy of Christ, even though it breaks them into pieces. Father, I, I ask on behalf of this church for myself, for the individuals here, for us as a body, that you would allow in us, that you would stir in us a desire to let the, the brokenness of this life, the heartache of realizing that we nailed Jesus to the cross, that we deserve death and hell, that he gave everything for us out of love. Lord, let that drive us to live out your agenda. Help us to surrender all to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.